Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. We're really glad that you're here today. Welcome. Uh, last weekend, we had 80 students, 15 volunteer and staff um, go off for a student ministries retreat, and the reports coming back have just been just amazing. And so seven students trusted Christ for the first time, 25 rededicating their lives to follow Christ with all that they are and have. And so we're just so grateful for our student ministries, and that's a good thing to clap for, isn't it? Thank you, Lord. So thanks for those of you who invest in our students, and thanks for those of you who encourage your students to bring their friends, and uh, we're so grateful for Tyler and Sarah and Isaac and RJ and all those who are just building into our student ministries and Students, we love you and so glad that you're finding hope and life and meaning in Christ. So today we are starting a new series in the book of Romans, and we're calling it Good News for All People. The gospel is the good news for all, good news that declares that we're loved by God, and good news that directs us how to live our lives for God. And so we're going to be launching into a lengthy series for us, and it's going to be broken at a couple of places with another series that we're going to be calling Roadblocks. We'll have that first break in the new year and then again right after Easter. But right now, we're going to be doing a deep dive into one of the most significant books in the Bible, for sure, in the New Testament. So I, today, as we introduce our series I'm going to be doing a lot of background work so that we get a sense of the context of the city of Rome, of the church there, of the Christ followers there, of Paul, who's the author of this letter. And so just kind of to, to kind of prime the pump today, let me just begin by saying this sixth book in the New Testament was written to Christians in Rome back in the middle of the first century. The church probably wasn't meeting in one place. When you get to the end of the book in chapter 16, you realize there are several groups that are meeting in households, and Paul sends his greetings to those people who own the house and those who meet in their house. And so you have these house churches, maybe four, five, six, 20 to 30 people. We say that because of the size of the homes that we know about at that time. And so in, in a real way, it was like a multi-site church, one church in different locations. In another way, it's just like these different churches right here in Madison, the surrounding communities that love and worship Christ right here in our own context. So is written 2,000 years ago in the middle of the first century. So it wasn't written to us, but it is for us. And we'll better understand the import of this book as we better understand the context, the people, the situations, the purpose. And that's going to be a lot of what we're doing today. So let me show you a map of the Roman Empire back in the first century. Now, we, we need to remember that the Roman Empire starts in a city, just like the Babylonian Empire started in Babylon, modern-day Iraq, okay? So it starts in this city. The city's about a million people in the first century. There's about forty to 50,000 Jews that are there in Rome. They're meeting in synagogues spread around the city, and it's as the message comes into the synagogues of Messiah, of Jesus Christ, that we start to have these Christ followers right there in the city. So um, 
if you, if you look at the vastness, you're going all the way to Spain in the west. You got in the south all of northern Africa. You, you have it going all the way to the east in Asia Minor, beyond even modern-day Turkey. And then all the way to the north, you'll notice Britain. All of this is under the Roman Empire. So this summer, we had some travels. First, there was this trip with the church, and we went to Israel and Greece. And in Israel, we saw all kinds of ruins that were Roman ruins. And then when we uh, visited family in Switzerland, there's this little section of a Roman road behind my dad's small little village of 900 people nestled on the French-Swiss border that is being maintained and cared for. And you can see it today and walk down it. We went and saw it again. And you can see these deep ruts that the Roman chariots made as they made their way from Rome, right? All roads lead to Rome. And these Roman roads were everywhere. And it didn't just connect the Roman Empire in terms of a transit system, but it became in God's good providence the very means by which the good news would spread all around the known world at that time. So in this city, very large, you can imagine like today, there's a great disparity between rich and poor. The Jewish people predominantly were poorer. What we know about the Jewish people, that they were marginalized, what we know is they were ridiculed and often persecuted. It wouldn't be very many years from the writing of this letter that Nero, after having burned a great part of Rome, would blame it on the Christians and actually would persecute them and martyr them and literally turn them into human torches. So here's what we know about the church in Rome. There is no record of any of the apostles. Paul doesn't get there. Peter doesn't get there before this church is established. Peter, Paul is going to get there, but only as a prisoner after the writing of this. So there's no record that one of the apostles traveled to Rome and shared the gospel. What we do have, though, is a record of some visitors from Rome in Acts chapter 2 who had come, these Jewish followers of God who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the peace the Feast of Pentecost, this would be 50 days, Pentecost 50th, 50 days after Passover, this harvest feast, this first fruits feast, when God pours out his spirit. Remember that story? If you don't, this is Peter preaching, and the, the, the spirit falls down, given to all the followers, and the miraculous things that happen isn't what people saw, these like flaming tongues coming down from heaven is how it's described. But what they heard, they heard these foreigners, they heard these Jewish men in Jerusalem declaring the wonders of God in their own language. And it's very likely that these visitors from Rome heard the gospel and they went back and they shared the gospel and people believed the gospel. And that's the beginning of the church as they gathered in these bands of 20 to 30 in houses around the city back in the middle of the first century. And so I want us to see that. I want us to see house churches, 20 to 30. So it's like two or three of our life groups coming together, meeting in someone's living room. But I also want us to look around the room and notice that there's, there's a great diversity. There are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. That was significant. 
The Jews didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. These were unclean people. These are people that had many gods, not just one God. These are people you stay away from. And so it was a testament to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to unite things that normally wouldn't be together. But it also raised a lot of tension because the church was predominantly led by Jewish leadership. And what happened in the middle of the first century, the emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews. We read about this in Acts 18. Look at this slide. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Now, the expulsion wasn't for a very long time, but what happens is you have this multi-ethnic church led predominantly by Jewish leadership. All of a sudden, all the Jews are out of the church, and now it's led by Gentiles, and it's comprised of Gentiles. And after a short while, the Jews come back, and they go, who stole our church? Like, what happened here? The Jewish flavor isn't there. Some of the practices might not have been there. And the leadership has changed. And so there was great tension in those small bands. And Paul's going to address some of that in the latter parts of his letter. Now, grab your Bible and let's dig into this wonderful letter. Paul's magnum opus at the end of his life, writing to the Christians there in the different homes around Rome. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just talk about the letter now. We've got a little setting of of Rome there and and the church there. Let's talk a little bit about this letter. First of all, the authorship is very clear. It's not debated by scholars. It's the first word in our text, Paul, a servant of Christ. And that phrase, a servant of Christ, jumps out at us. Because the first time we meet this man, he actually has another name. Saul in the New Testament is the same guy as Paul. There is a King Saul in the Old Testament, different guy. A uh, thousand years before this, okay? But the first time we meet Saul, we read this about him in Acts chapter 8, 3. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So he's this religious man. He's a Pharisee, and he is zealous to purge the Jewish synagogues of this cult and of this teaching that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the promised Messiah. He's incensed, he's enraged, and he is on a mission to wipe out. He's like an assassin 
to take out anything and everything and anyone that has anything to do with Jesus Christ. So when we read this, Paul, a servant of Christ, we just remember how this man's life has been transformed. We remember how when people heard the name Saul that were Christ followers, man, you know, they got chills. They were gripped with fear because he had authority and he had power from the religious leadership to imprison. And he, he himself acknowledges that he was responsible for Stephen's murder. So he was a bad dude who now describes himself as a servant. And we're just starting to get a grip and a taste of the beautiful power of Christ and the good news about Christ. He's describing himself as an apostle. There were many apostles. There were the 12 apostles, to be sure. And Paul fits into that with his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the way to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, through this vision. But the apostle, that word would be a common word inside and outside the church. It means someone who was a sent out one, someone who was commissioned with a message. And the message that Paul's commissioned with is this good news. So the occasion or the time period of this letter is at the end of his third missionary journey. So there's three of them. He goes out the first time. It's a short loop. He starts planting churches around Asia Minor. He goes out a second time, revisits those. He goes out a third time. And on his way back, Acts chapter 26, actually, actually Acts 20 verses 3 through 6 tells us that he spent three months in Corinth. And it's that period of time that he's writing to the church in Rome. And it's, it kind of blows our minds when we realize he's never actually been there yet. Because at the end of the book, there's like 27 names that he references. It's more personal than almost any of his other letters. And so he's writing to these people from a place called Corinth. And actually, our, our trip this year, we, we spent a day in Corinth. And so I shot a little home video. And I mean, this is home video, and don't get seasick, all right? Um, I, I don't want to tell you who was holding the camera, but I don't know what was going on. So um, just to set the stage, at the end of uh, Romans verse 16, chapter 16, verse 23, Paul sends his greeting from this guy named Erastus. You see this? Who is the city's director of public works. So he's, he heads up the public works. So this video is of me standing on some pavement where Erastus, this is so cool when we see this, the historicity of the scriptures. So today you can go to Corinth and see Erastus's name carved into the pavement that he dedicates to the city, that is dedicated to him, that he helped pay for. And here's the little video. Buckle up. So church, I'm standing right here on a piece of pavement that was dedicated to the city by a guy named Erastus who shows up at the end of the letter and again in 2 Timothy. This is Corinth. This is the city where Paul spent a year and a half. This is where he met Aquila and Priscilla, where he was making tents, where he started to teach in the synagogue, and then in Tertius's house. This is the place where he wrote not only 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but this is where he wrote the letter we're studying right now, the letter to the church in Rome. You see the beautiful Acropolis behind me where 
the temple was and all that was associated with this. This is the way that connected all the way down to the harbor there in the, in the uh, Aegean Sea. And then there was a second harbor over this hill that would have been behind me, a unique city where Paul spent a year and a half of his ministry in the early 50s when he wrote to the church in Rome. I get it now. It's the word harbor, and he was thinking about ships, and so, you know, ships do. All right, so he's writing from Corinth. He's about 25 years into his ministry, so this is the end. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's collected an offering from the Gentile believers, bringing it back to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They're going through famine and hardship, and so it's this kind, gracious, compassionate, benevolent offering. It's symbolic of the church's unity together, the church's love for each other. This is a big time, and, and that's where he's at in terms of the timing here. Now, the purpose. One of the things scholars are always trying to do is figure out what is the purpose. Sometimes, you know, it's just explicitly stated in a verse, like at the end of John chapter 20, verse 31. It just says, you know, I, I've written this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, there are some explicit statements. We're going to look at that. There are some implications to what's going on, like in chapters 14 and 15. And it's better to think of this letter not as one primary purpose, but several different things. So let me suggest four big things that could be going on and why he wrote this letter. The first comes explicitly from Romans 15, 15. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. So it's a reminder again of the grace that God had given. In other words, of the gospel, of the good news message. It's a reminder because it's easy for us to forget, right? And it's easy for us to think that once we have the gospel, it's the ABCs. But look at this slide. The gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian faith and the life. It's the A to Z, and he wants to remind them of those very, very things. It's not just for starters. It's not just the appetizers, and let's get onto the main course now. It is the main course. It's not just the front door and the way in. It's the way on. Every step of the way of our life of faith all the way to the end. We don't move on from the gospel, he's saying. You guys, we got to go deeper into the gospel, and this is a deep dive. And this is going to be a challenging thing. It's challenging for me. I've taught it before. I studied before. But there's a little fear and trembling that goes on here in bringing this. So I just want to say we, we, we've got to prepare ourselves. I'm going to encourage you to read it through in, in the days ahead. You know, this was read. This was read to the church in one city. And then that letter probably went to another house church and then to another house church. So I want to challenge you this week to just read through it. And do not be surprised where you go, huh? What did he just say? I think I need to read that again. All the time I need to read it again. I mean, this guy, Paul, he never went to grammar school because he's got run-on sentences like you cannot believe. So just get ready to be challenged. But, but remember, Paul doesn't want his believers then, and that would be true for us today, to think like, oh, yeah, ABCs, I got that. 
So what's the meat here? Now, what's the next big step? No, you don't ever move away from the gospel, and it's going to remind us of these things to the point that we would be strengthened and encouraged. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 11. I want to strengthen your faith and encourage you. And at the same time, there's people that are taking shots at him, chapter 3, verse 8, and he's defending his character, his ministry, most importantly, his message. There's a second purpose. He knows that in the very far western ends of the Roman Empire, in a place called Spain, they have not yet heard the gospel. And this guy is passionate to not build on someone else's foundation, he says, but to take the good news to people who've never heard it. And so he's on a mission to get back to Spain, and he's writing this letter to tell them, I'm coming, and I'm going to use you as a launching point, and then I'm going to go to Spain, and I want you to be ready, not just ready to receive me with open arms and hospitality, but ready to support me because I'm going to need some financial support. So it's almost like a fundraising letter to the Christians in Rome for his further mission that he longs to take in a place called Spain. There's this implicit person uh, purpose in chapters 14 through the middle of chapter 15, where he addresses these two groups in the church, the strong and the weak, a reference to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and how he's concerned about these factions and these tension and this this whole thing going on where the Jewishness wants to hold on to a lot of the law, and so they do, and Paul talks about, hey, we're freed from that, but he he said, look, you've got to be mindful of each other here and, and be, uh, you need to be generous to each other and, and treat each other graciously. And he's protecting and he's preserving the unity so that their mission and their witness is intact in this world. A divided church has no power in any community. That's true of our marriage. That's true of our family. That's true of division wherever it is. And so he's addressing that. And then finally, what he's addressing is seen at the end of chapter uh, 16, verse 26, where he ends the letter and he writes this, I'm proclaiming the good news about Christ so that God gets the glory as the Gentiles, people like you and me, come to faith. And so there's very much going on here, this apologetic, this, I called it the magnum opus, this just grand declaration of the gospel and its implications in a person's life, in a community's life. And so he's writing this. And as you think about Rome and you think about this book that begins and ends with the gospel, this good news, that's what the word gospel means, I want you to think about the sections. Now, this is probably going to be all new, but there's 16 chapters, and here's how it breaks down. One through four is going to answer the question, why do we need the good news? And it's a little depressing because it's going to put a mirror up and it's going to reveal the true nature of our lives apart from Christ. So it's kind of anthropology 101 from God. Why do we need the gospel? Chapters 1 through 4. Then the next section is 5 through 8. And that answers the question, what does the gospel bring to a person? And he's going to talk about new life, and he's going to talk about new hope. He's going to talk about this new power through the Spirit in our lives. All of chapter 8, a study on the Holy Spirit. Chapters 9 through 11 is going to be this really important question, especially in a church that's made up of Jews and of Gentiles. And that is, 
What does the gospel bring to the Jews? How, do the, how does Israel fit into God's gospel plan? So a whole thing on Israel and the Jews and the Gentiles and how we grow out of Judaism and we're this, this shoot that's been grafted in and how God in his mercy is going to bring many within Israel and Judaism to faith in Christ. And then chapters 12 through 16, it's kind of the so what of the gospel. So, so how are we supposed to live in light of the good news? If we believe this good news and following this God-man Jesus Christ, what are the implications for my life and how I live? All right? So why we need it, one through four. What's its change? What does it do in my life? Five through eight, nine through 11. What about the Jews in Israel? 12 through 16. So how do we live out the gospel? What does that look like? All right. Got that? There's no test, so it's okay. All right, expectations. Um, number one, a growing understanding of God. He starts right away by saying this is the gospel of God. This is the good news about a God who is not only holy, who is not only just, but who has infinite love and whose love in our lives, there, there is nothing that can separate us from that. At the end of chapter 11, so he's gone through all of this rich theology and he's going to turn the corner and say, and here's what it looks like in everyday life. At the end of that section, here's what he writes about God, this great, great explosion of praise and worship. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So expect that our understanding and with that, our love for God is going to grow. That's a great thing. Second, expect that we have a better understanding of humanity. It's what I just talked about. So Romans is going to remind us that we're all sinners and that we stand guilty before a holy God. But Romans is also going to tell us in chapter 8, verse 1, that in Christ, if our faith and trust is in Christ and his perfect life, then we face no condemnation. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna better understand the human condition, who we were, who we are before Christ, and who we are in Christ and can be in Christ. That's going to lead to greater humility. Third, we're, we're going to have a much better understanding of the gospel and our place in it. I loved how Paul starts the letter saying, this is the gospel of God. This is the message that I've been commissioned to share. And then at the end of the book, he calls it my gospel. And so what we're going to see is that, that God's story is, is meant for us to be part of that. And so it's, it's my story, Paul says, and we're going to understand that the gospel is not just God's story, but it's God's story for us and for all people and find our place in it. The good news, we read early on here, look again at verse 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. We see the good news is from God. 
the gospel he promised beforehand. So there's continuity. He promised it beforehand. How and who? Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Those 39 books of our Old Testament regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, speaking of his humanity, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, speaking of his deity, Jesus Christ our Lord. So a better understanding of the gospel understands this is from God. This isn't made up by men. It's rooted in his character, which is true and perfect. It's also rooted in history. This is a story, he says, that has been unfolding. This is not a new story. This goes all the way back to the promises of God that have been shared with God's people through the prophets. And the first prophet that we read about in the Bible is a guy named Moses who gives us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the very first promise of the gospel is tucked away in the first couple of pages in Genesis 3.15 after Adam and Eve have eyes wide open, rejected and rebelled against God. God dealing out the judgments against the serpent, Satan, and against uh, Eve and against Adam. Then he says to Eve, he says, look, one of your male descendants is going to crush this enemy's head. He's talking about victory over this one who's now just stolen and killed and destroyed all that is good and perfect in God's creation. And there's a promise of a promised son, a savior. Chapter 12, of a promised son to a guy named Abraham. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, a promise of a son, a son of David, who's going to set up an eternal kingdom, and his son will rule forever. These are all the gospel promises unfolding. He says there's continuity here. This is not like, oh man, we had a plan A back in, in the Old Testament and that was a mess. And so now we got a plan B totally new. No, this is, this is beautiful continuity. It speaks to the unity of the scriptures and the unity of God's heart as he has been pursuing us even before creation, knowing that we would rebel, pursuing us with his mercy and grace and his life-changing love. What do we know about the gospel? It's verse 3, regarding his son. Who is his son? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is fully man. He's a descendant of David. And he is fully divine. Proven, declared, appointed. Our text says here, it's the word declared. The boundary set off that he is divine through the power of the resurrection. He didn't just die. But through the power of the spirit, he rose again on the third day. And so this gospel that we're going to better understand is going to keep reminding us that it's for us. It's for all of us, for any of us. Jew and Gentiles was a way of capturing anyone that was breathing in the world at that time. You were either a Jew or you weren't a Jew, which meant you were a Gentile. That word could be translated nations for all the people. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations. This is a message of life and change for all nations. And it is a powerful, life-changing message. Paul knew that. He knows how his life has been radically changed. And I want you and I to understand that as we come to a book like Romans, of the power of the gospel to change us. When people like Paul meet Jesus, their lives are changed. They go upside down, inside out, right side up. And so there are things in your life 
that you desperately need change in. And, and I'm telling you that the, the first step is not to worry about that right now is to make sure you are looking to Christ, that you are radically connected to Christ, that you've surrendered all that you are and have to Christ as your Lord. When Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, things begin to change. Look at what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16. You could call this the theme verse of the whole book. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And believe you me, it could have been easy to be ashamed because we're forgetting This is new. This is new for the Romans. This is new for the Jews. That Jesus is the Messiah, this one who was crucified. Remember what the New Testament says about the crucifixion of the Messiah? That is a stumbling block. It's a mockery to the Gentile pagans. Like, oh yeah, that's a big, powerful God. He ends up on a cross. And for the Jews going, that's not the Savior we were thinking of. We saw him as a conquering king. What is this crucifixion stuff? It would have been easy to be ashamed as a marginalized Christ follower. And there weren't many in that day. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here's why. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jews, and that included him. Then to the Gentiles. And he's seen it over and over again as he shared the good news story. Lives change, lives change. For in the gospel... In this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this is a righteousness. This is, righteousness is holiness in action. This is a righteousness that doesn't exist in people. It's a righteousness that is part of who God is. It's been revealed. And that righteousness becomes ours, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so when we declare with our mouth, look at this verse, Romans 10, 9 to 10. If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, personally saying that, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, what does the scripture say? You will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe. It's not magical words that you've got to say. And you don't really believe it. You don't mean it. But you're just saying it because you think that's the, you know, that, that's the secret code like to get in it's the password now when you believe it in your heart when you profess it with your mouth and with your life you are saved in chapter 10 verse 13 he says everyone and anyone who calls on the name of the lord of jesus will be saved i'm wondering if you've done that I hope, if you haven't, that you'll be entering, entering this study with an openness to go, is, is Jesus more than just a good moral teacher? Would it make a difference for me to surrender all that I am and have and place my trust in one who the Bible says actually stood in my place to give me life and hope today, not just tomorrow? to be able to stand before a holy God wrapped in his righteousness, not my own. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Are you ever amazed at the different ways that people die? I mean, 
I don't know where this video was on my phone this morning. There's a bunch of bikers going down this really nice mountain road, and all of a sudden this deer goes flying, hits a car and goes flying in the air and just missed them. But you know that could happen, right? You, you know it has happened. Deer hits the car and you're gone. I mean, it, it's just amazing. And yet we all, you know, we, we're just like high school kids who think we're invincible, and we don't realize that actually today could be the last day we have. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. And don't put that off. Jesus invites us into a relationship, in a relationship where we experience his love and we have that tagline that he has right here in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's your calling in life from God, to be in relationship with him. But he's not going to force that. May your better growing understanding of the gospel bring you to that longing of, yeah, that's what I was made for. That is what I need. So what to expect with this better understanding of God? Well, expect a renewed hope in the power of Christ to change things and anything you're facing. In chapter 8, verse 22, there's this powerful verse where it says, all creation is groaning for Christ's return when he makes all things new. And one of the things we're going to understand is a clear understanding of the gospel is not just about how God is reconciling rebels who've committed treason and who've rejected God and just done life on their own into a relationship. It's not just about people, but the scriptures say God is reconciling all things. And then when Christ comes back, there's going to be a new heaven right here on earth. Everything that has been decimated by our rebellion against God made new. And, and when we live in that reality, when we're in the middle of the story and it just stinks and it's hard and our bodies are breaking down, and our marriages are falling apart and our finances are upside down and whatever it is you're challenged with, it is so important to have the hope of the gospel of a better day that you were made for. And I know this, you long for that. The dissonance of the stories and experiences in this world that remind us of things that are twisted and broken. We go, that's not right. That's not right. We long for that because we were made for that. So this week, I encourage you to read it. But I'm just going to tell you, you're going to feel stupid because I do. And you're going to go, i got to read that again. You're going to have to read it again. So maybe you don't have U version. I got U version on my phone. I'm always using U version. So get the if you got a smartphone, get U version on your phone. You can listen to Romans while you're driving to work. You can read it. You can read it in different translations. Read it from front to back if you can, but buckle up. Read it maybe with a piece of paper and I'm going to write down some questions. Read it with an understanding of why I need the gospel, one through four. What happens by receiving the gospel message, five through eight? What about the Jews in Israel, nine through 11? Oh, like 12, when we get to 12, we're going to go, I love this part of the book. Like, why did it take so long? So 12 through 16, how do we live out the gospel, okay? So keep that construct in mind. All right, a couple questions as we go. Who in your life, like Saul, Needs to hear the gospel, but right now in your mind, you're going, it'll never happen. They will. This is a least likely candidate. If any Christian who knew Paul was asked that question, without a doubt, they'd all say, well, there's this guy named Saul. There's no way. I mean, he hates anything and everything to do with Jesus. 
Do you got someone like that? Why don't you start praying for that person, believing the power of the gospel to change a hard heart. And I want you to pray, God, I may be the only Bible they ever read. Help me to exhibit your kindness. Romans 2, 4 is going to tell us the kindness of God leads to repentance, to change. God, help me to embody your kindness to this person who hates everything to do with you. And I'm part of that mix. Who is that person? Where's your identity? Verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God. If God's love isn't at the central part and the root of who you are, you are out of position to live for him, to carry his purposes forward. And you will do life with you always feeling like other things could be good things, need to help shore you up to give you that sense of significance, that, that sense of security, that sense of meaning and purpose and joy and happiness. You're going to be out of position because you're going to need things because you're lacking. Christ gives us his love and nothing can separate us from that love. Chapter 8 at the end. And when we have the fullness of his love, we are secure and we are positioned to bless. And all I know is, when I'm needy and looking for Lori or looking for a staff member or looking for you or anybody else to give me what I feel is lacking or what I feel I deserve, I'm out of position because I'm living for me. I don't even see what's going on in your world. But man, when we are secure in God's love, then we are so ready to dispense that and let it be a conduit, our lives, to other people. And when that happens, I can tell you the joy you might have of somebody stroking your ego, making you feel more secure, that investment returning. Whoa, that was great, 12% this year. It doesn't compare to when you are a conduit of God's grace and you see what happened. In church, I'm going to tell you a story that you don't even know what happened, but you're part of it through your giving to benevolence. So this week, I was on the phone with two friends, married couple that used to be part of this church, moved away. They're in a different city right now. I'm talking to my friend. He's telling me that, man, they're in a tough spot. He was making too much money, and so he couldn't, they couldn't stay in the affordable housing, is what they were told. And so he had to quit his job. So his family had a roof over his house. Then he gets a new job, but they're behind on their power electric bill, and so they haven't had power for two weeks, he tells me. My wife's moved out with the little kids, and she's in a shelter. I call her. She says, well, I didn't move just because it's cold, but I think it's over. I'm leaving them. And so I'm fighting for this marriage. A, a husband who's resigned. Well, it's just what it is. I'm going, don't, don't you do that. Don't you get passive right now. You fight for your marriage. And I'm talking to his wife about these things. And these two have reconciled this weekend and we have put their power back on and they're going to church this morning. And man, I don't know about you, but that's the best part of my week. And it's the love of God that disposes us to want to be generous, to want to fight for people's best, to, to save a marriage and to rescue a family. 
And, and, and that is the ultimate feel-good, and life isn't about feeling good. But the reality is, that's part of God's blessing. When, when faith has this obedience element to it that he talks about, the obedience of faith, blessing comes our way. That doesn't mean anything, everything's easy, cheesy pie. But it means it's good, even when it's hard, because of who God is. So who are you serving? Paul said, I'm serving Christ. Who are you living for? Are our lives holy? And what I'm not talking about is what you don't do. Because when, when you hear that word holy, you're going like I'm going, like, oh, yeah, there's 29 things we can't do as a Christian. And everybody thinks being a Christian is what we can't do. Well, there are certain things we can't do. There are certain things Jesus didn't do. But Jesus' life is not defined by what he did do. His life is defined by what he did do. Uh, the word holy means set apart. Is my life, is your life, set apart with a purpose to serve Christ. Let's pray. God, help us to do that with, with hearts that are empowered and made new by your spirit because the truth is we won't ever do that apart from your word. Grant faith right now to people who are hearing the good news of the gospel, your gospel about your son. No one else in all of history claimed to be fully man and fully God. No one else predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. We believe that. Lord, thank you for loving us. Help us to live for you. Help us to serve you. Help us to be people who are holy, set apart, different, not conformed to this world, but transformed by your word, renewed minds that are living out your perfect, pleasing will to do good in this world and to experience your grace in and through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.